One of Charles's greatest contributions to the Christian church was the 6,500 or so hymns that he wrote, including many songs that we sing in our churches today. So songs like, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, uh, And Can It Be, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. These and many others were written by Charles Wesley. Uh, in, in the days before modern copyright laws, people would often find a song that someone would, had written and, and they would like it and they would put it together in one of their song books for singing in their church. And uh, they would sometimes, if they didn't like a phrase or a word, they would change the lyrics to whatever best suited their congregation. And that sort of thing would make Charles Wesley quite cranky. Uh, so he once wrote that people were perfectly welcome to reprint the hymns written by him and his brother John, provided they print them just as they are. But I desire that they would not attempt to mend them, for they are really not able. None of them is able to mend either the sense or the verse, he wrote. Well, thankfully, not everybody listened to Charles, so listened to the original words that he wrote, to one of our beloved Christmas carols. Hark, how all the welkin rings. Glory to the King of Kings. Thankfully, somebody changed that, those words to that carol. That word welkin is an old word for heaven. And uh, one of Charles's friends, George Whitfield, who was also a pastor, he saw those lyrics and he said, we gotta fix that. And he changed it to hark the herald angels sing, and hence a beloved Christmas carol was born. So we got to thank George Whitfield for improving the song just a little bit, but there's also much to commend in what Charles wrote. Listen to some of these words that he wrote, and listen to what they teach us about who God the Son, Jesus, is. He, he wrote, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ, listen to this, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to appear, Jesus our Emmanuel here. Whitfield fixed that part too, but the theology is good. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Come, desire of nations, come, fix us in thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Now, what's more astonishing to me than just the beauty and the theological depth in those lyrics is the fact that Charles wrote those a year after he became a Christian. A baby Christian writing words like that with theology like that about God the Son. Now, let's, let's contrast that with what many American Christians believe about God the Son. LifeWay Research recently uh, did a massive survey 
publishing uh, data about American beliefs about Jesus, and you're able to uh, kind of play with the numbers a little bit and, and only uh, just filter out only those Americans who profess to be Christians and claim to attend church at least four times a month. So that might even disqualify some of you in here. I love you. Merry Christmas. So professing Christians that attend church four times a month claim to believe this about Jesus. 95% believe Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. 98% believe Jesus is the Son of God the Father. So far, so good. But only 63% of professing American Christians who attend church at least four times a month, only 63% believe that Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem. In other words, two out of five professing, church-going Christians are holding heretical beliefs about Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, what about you? How would you answer those questions? How certain are you of your answers? Could you defend what you believe about Jesus Christ, God the Son? Now listen to me, brother, sister, friend, it doesn't really matter if we sing Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, if we don't really believe that Jesus is, in fact, the everlasting Lord. So I'm going to invite you again to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Again, this is, this is a letter written by Paul the Apostle about uh, 30, 40 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. It's written to a group of Christians in a region of the world called Galatia, a group of churches, and these churches are tempted to abandon the good news of the gospel. They're tempted to think that the way to be a good Christian is to be a good Jew. And Paul writes to say no. And he writes to remind them, among other things, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we are also kept by God's grace. And the grace that keeps us is Trinitarian grace. And that's what we see all over our passage in Galatians 4 that we're reading for the past few weeks. So we've, we've said repeatedly that you cannot rightly tell the Christmas story without the Trinity. Last week, we said you cannot rightly tell the story without God the Father who sends his Son. This morning, I want you to see that you cannot rightly tell the Christmas story without the Son of God who was sent. We're going to ask and answer, with God's help, three questions from our text this morning. Who was sent? How was he sent? And why? Why was he sent? Before we do that, let's read the text one more time together. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Question number one, who was sent? If you look at the passage, it's quite clear The text says in verse 4 that God, it's speaking of God the Father, God the Father sent forth his what? His Son. God the Father sent forth his Son. So this passage is quite clear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But what, what what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Years ago, I was preaching at a church in Memphis, Tennessee, and I preached about Jesus, and I said something about how Jesus was, in fact, God. And someone came up to me after the service, hoping to correct me, and they said, wait a second, you said that Jesus is God. I thought that Jesus was just the Son of God. And I said, yes, he is the Son of God, but he is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is, as we've said, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. There never was a time when the Son was not. He is God. And this woman had never heard that before claiming to have been in the church her entire life, had never heard or perhaps never fully understood that Jesus Christ is God. He he doesn't just sprout onto the scene in Bethlehem having never been there before. He is the eternal God. When we say Jesus is the Son of God, we're not saying that there's a time in history when he begins to exist, but that he always existed. You say, well, how do you, how do you know that? How do we know that when the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, it's also saying that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity? Well, consider what Jesus says about himself. Just consider some of the things Jesus says about himself. We could, we could make a whole sermon or even a ser- sermon series out of this, but let's just consider a few examples this morning where Jesus shows us his divinity. First of all, Jesus said, he came down from heaven. John chapter 6, verses 32 to 35, Jesus says he is the bread of life that has come down out of heaven. Now, if you were to go to Barnes and Noble uh, or uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s, Borders or Books a Million, you know, one of those places, some sort of bookstore and went to the popular religion section, you would probably find scores of books about people who went up to heaven, right? It was a pretty popular genre for a while. These kind of heaven tourism books. You know, little Timmy went to heaven and and here's what Timmy told his mom and dad. Timmy's three. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But you could read the book if you wanted to. And, and there's all sorts of these books about people where they claim, I went to heaven and here's what I saw. Jesus is claiming something completely different. He's not saying, hey, I visited there and came back to tell you about it. Jesus says, actually, that's where I'm from. He came down from heaven. Jesus said that he could forgive sin. You remember the story in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. And Jesus is in a crowded house filled with people, and 
they, these friends want to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus for healing, but they, they can't get him in the house, and so they tear some of the ceiling tiles off and lower him down, and they put him in front of Jesus, and Jesus, he, he perceives what's going on in the hearts of everybody listening, and he says to this person, your sins are forgiven you. And, and all of a sudden, the, the religious people, the Pharisees, the teachers, the scribes, they hear that, and they say immediately, who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, if you were to come up to me after the service and slap me in the face, I don't recommend it, but you could. If you were to do that, I could say to you afterwards, I forgive you. But if you were to slap Derek in the face, I can't forgive you for that can't be like, it's all right, you're forgiven. Derek would be like, what in the world are you talking about, right? <laughs> Come on, man, where do I get a say in this, right? So I can forgive you for what you do to me, but I can't just categorically forgive you for everything that you might do. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. This paralyzed man lying on a mat, Jesus says, all your sins are forgiven. The religious people say, who can forgive sins but God alone? To which Jesus could have responded, exactly because that's exactly who he is claiming to be. Jesus said he would judge all people. You can read about this in John chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, or in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, where Jesus says the day is coming when he will judge all people. So, so Tupac famously sung, only God can judge me. And in one sense, that's true, isn't it? I mean, we can, we can render impar- or we can render like temporary um, judgments here, and we should, but ultimate justice, ultimate judgment comes not in this life, but in the life to come. There is coming a day when every single person will stand before the judgment seat of God. And Jesus says, guess who's sitting at the judgment seat? Me. See, you can be in this room and you can say, I don't give a rip about Jesus. I don't believe in him. I don't care what you all think. It does not matter on judgment day. You will look into his eyes. You will see him. He will judge all people. Jesus says, I'm the judge. I'm the judge. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that he was God. People will often say, well, Jesus never explicitly claimed to be God. That's just absolutely not true. Read John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. We're not going to read the passage, but let me just summarize uh, what's going on for you. So Jesus, uh, he's debating some of the Jews, and uh, they're they're getting on to him because he's performing these miracles, and, and, and they've got to find an explanation for it. How is it that Jesus is able to do these incredible things? And so finally someone says, I know, he's doing it with the power of demons. And so they accuse Jesus of of doing the miraculous with the power of a demon. So Jesus rebukes these guys, and he says, listen, even Abraham knew me. Even Abraham rejoiced when he saw me. Now, that's a pretty powerful argument, because if you're a Jew, there's very few people that are more revered than Abraham. He's the father of the Israelite nation. 
He's, he, he's the guy, right? Abraham. It's like talking about Abraham Lincoln to an American or George Washington or somebody like that, right? So Abraham, he, he, Jesus says around A.D. 30-ish, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. Here's the problem with that statement. Abraham had died more than 2,000 years earlier, right? So the, the religious leaders, the Jewish folks, they said, come on, bro, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You're not even 50, and Abraham saw you? What are you talking about? And Jesus says in John 8, 58, highlight it in your Bible, underline it, tab it, whatever you need to do. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, truly, truly, in other words, what I'm about to say, you can take this to the bank. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus does not say, before Abraham was, I was. If he said that, then he might be implying that he's just really, really old. He has kind of those elvish features, you know, that make you look really, really young, even then you're old. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I have always been. And Jesus is clearly drawing our attention to another story in the book of Exodus where Moses is, is talking with a bush that's on fire and it's not being consumed. And this burning bush is saying, God is saying through this burning bush to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And, and Moses says, well, who's sending me? When, when Pharaoh and the people ask, who is saying, let my people go? What do I tell them? And Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is the covenant name for God all throughout the Old Testament. Anytime you see in all caps in your Old Testament the word Lord, that is this covenant name of God. And Jesus comes on the scene 2,000 years ago, and he says, that's me. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus also blessed those who worshiped him. There's multiple examples of this, but one in particular is in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 30. Do you remember the disciples saw Jesus resurrected Sunday night, the day of his resurrection. Everyone was there, except for Judas, of course, who had killed himself, and Thomas, who was out getting Chinese or something like that. Thomas is out. Everyone's there in the room, in the upper room. They see Jesus. Thomas comes back, and everyone's like, bro, you missed it. Jesus is alive. And Thomas says, I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it until I see with my own eyes. Like 11 or 10 of his closest friends, he spent the last three years with them. He says, I don't believe any of you unless I see, unless I put my hands in his scars. And so, a little time passes and Jesus comes back to appear to his disciples and Thomas is there. And Thomas, seeing Jesus, do you remember what he says? The text says, he fell on his knees and worshiped Jesus, saying, my Lord and my God. 
Now, here's what Jesus doesn't do in that moment. Jesus doesn't say, well, take it easy, man. Why are you worshiping me? And there is examples of that in the Bible where someone will worship, like Paul and Barnabas or, or, or somebody else or an angel, and they'll say, don't worship me, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus actually blesses Thomas and all of you who believe in Jesus and worship him without seeing. Why? Because Jesus is God. He claimed to be God. He accepted worship as God. He blesses those who worship him as God. So when we say Jesus is the son of God, we are saying he is the second person of the Trinity who has existed for eternity. Now, C.S. Lewis is very helpful here in his book, Mere Christianity, when he talks about who Jesus is. And listen to what he says. It's also on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, do you believe? that Jesus is God. If you do, how can your life look the same? How can it? How can our lives not be changed by the, by the glorious truth that God himself stepped onto this planet to redeem us? Who was sent? None other than God himself for you. How was he sent then? How is he sent? It's the second question we want to answer this morning. And, and oftentimes, how a gift is sent doesn't really matter. Often, how a gift is sent doesn't affect your appreciation of the gift, but, but sometimes it can. So this time of the year, a lot of families, maybe you, you're sending packages, uh, sending presents to family members and friends that, that aren't close. And, and most of the time, you know, if you send it uh, UPS or FedEx, it doesn't really matter. Maybe don't send it Postal Service uh, or DHL, but most of the time, you know, it doesn't really matter. How you send it doesn't matter, but occasionally it can. So for example, if imagine that you were deployed and you tell your wife, I'm sending you presents for Christmas. They're on their way, and the doorbell rings, and you're standing on the front porch with the presents in your hand, right? That time, the delivery actually matters, right? And so, too, with how God the Father sends us his son. The way he sends his son should deepen our appreciation for the gift that we have received. The text tells us, Two things about how God has sent his son. 
First of all, he became human. Verse 4, he was born of woman. When God sends his son, he, he doesn't send him in a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. He doesn't send him in a burning bush. He doesn't send him in the parting of waves or some other way. He sends him as a baby. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you, brothers, sisters, and friends. Even as Christians, we yawn at this sometimes. I mean, it's Christmas time, right? How many songs are we going to sing about how a baby was born? We know all this stuff. How many nativities are we going to have? How many times are we going to tell this Christmas story? There comes a point, if we're honest, in all of our hearts where where this can become for us a, a bit too stale, where it does not mesmerize us the way that it should. This is God, the eternal God, choosing to become a human to save you. Now, I'm going to try just to let you see how incredible this is and how audacious it is. But forgive me a very ridiculous analogy. I want you to imagine that you have an aquarium at home with a handful of frogs. And you notice one day that your frogs have lost their appetite. They're just out of sorts. They won't eat anything. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, it's a ridiculous analogy, you love these frogs. And you, you, you can't imagine life without these frogs. So you go to Google and you look up frog vet. And you, and you try to find some sort of veterinarian that uh, he specializes in frogs. And you probably got to drive to Norfolk or something like that. So, but you're going to do it. You're going to go because you really care about these little guys. And you get to the frog vet. And, and he does a little bit of an examination on your frogs. And he's like, man, this is bad. I've never seen a case quite this bad before. And you're like, I didn't even know you saw any frog cases. That's a thing, apparently. But there he is. And he's looking at your frogs. And he's like, I don't think there's anything I can do as a vet, and you just know something crazy is about to happen. He says, because I'm a frog vet, and we don't really see a lot of frogs, uh, I have a second job as a magician. I'm as a wizard of sorts, and so I can save your frogs, but here's how we've got to do it. We, uh, there, there, there's a, a way that I can put you in the aquarium to save your frogs. And you love these guys, so you're, you're thinking, all right, tell me more. And he says, there's a little bit of a catch here. All right, first of all, I, I, can't, just, I can't just send you in as a frog. Doesn't, these spells don't work this way. You have to go as an egg, transform into a tadpole, and then a froglet, and then eventually you'll turn into a frog. And if you do that, you'll get all the respect that you need to convince your frogs to eat their food. And the second catch is this. This is really dangerous because sometimes frogs will eat tadpoles and froglets. So the very action of trying to save your frogs may end up being the death of you. Now, here's the question. How many of you would sign up for that? (laughs) Like, 
Do you love your frogs that much? You're like, I don't even have frogs. I don't even like frogs. This whole thing just backfired from the beginning. But just imagine, can you imagine choosing to to become that, to give up your humanity, to become an egg and a tadpole and a froglet and a frog so that you can rescue frogs? That's crazy. That's absurd. This whole thing is absolutely ridiculous, and that is entirely the point because the fact that God the Son would choose to step into this aquarium called Earth to become one of us, to save us, is, if you think about it, Absurd, and yet it is the best news in the universe that God would love you and I like that. And you might be thinking right now, what are you saying, I'm a frog? Well, we were created on the same day as frogs. So the difference between you becoming a frog is actually narrower than the difference between God becoming human flesh. This is glorious good news, church, that God would become one of us. So the church father, Athanasius, said, he became what we are, that he might make us what he is. That's the good news of the gospel. He became human. But also as part of this plan, God sent his son, how? By making him human, but also he became cursed. He became cursed. Remember last week, if you were with us, we were talking about um, what it means to be under the law. You see verse four, he was born of a woman. He was also born under the law. We talked about, you know, if you drive on Bacosan roads, you are under the law, right? Right? So the speed limits here, whether you're from Pocosin or not, if you drive on the roads here, you are under the jurisdiction of the laws here. So when Jesus was born under the law, Jesus is choosing to submit himself to the law of God. He's choosing, as it were, to to get on the road and drive the speed limit. He's born under the law. Jesus willingly subjects himself to obey the law of God. But, but that phrase, born under the law, it ought to help us to reflect even deeper because there's also penalties for breaking the law. I want you to imagine a place where whenever you get on the road, every single infraction is trapped and penalized. Like, you know, sometimes you can get away with it here. All right, Mr. Police Chief, I'm not talking about me, but other people (laughs) might sometimes get away with it. But like, just imagine a place like Emporia, but worse, right? Like where there's, you cannot get away with it. And like wherever, whatever infraction, you, you don't use your blinker, you go a mile over, you're caught and you're penalized. Like this place where every infraction, every breaking of the law will be paid for. That is God's universe. 
Now, we don't, we don't think of it like that because we get away with it sometimes for a little bit, but never ultimately. Every crime, every offense, every sin will be punished in God's universe. Everyone. You will not get away with any of it. Every sin must be punished in one of two places. Either an eternal separation from God in a place called hell or on the cross of Jesus Christ. When the text tells us that Jesus was born under the law, it's telling us that Jesus not only is going to choose to obey the law of God perfectly, but he is also choosing to absorb the penalty that you deserve for disobeying God's law. So in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ came to this earth knowing that he would become a curse for you. Knowing, Christian, that every sin you commit, past, present, future, he would die as if he committed it. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, listen to me. The curse, the penalty for your sin has been paid. That is incredibly glorious news. What's the song we sing? Jesus paid what? It all. Not 90% and you do the other 10. Not 99% of it. Jesus paid it all. If you're a Christian, that's what you have in Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Not because God is sweeping it under the rug, but because all the condemnation was put on Jesus in your place. He became cursed. And if you're in this room, you're not a follower of Jesus. Listen, this is what is freely available for you simply by turning from your sin and trusting in this Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Well, final question this morning. Why was Jesus sent? Why was the Son sent? Some gifts that you might open on Christmas will require an explanation. Well, I think most of the time you open the present, you know, you may, it makes sense, but if you open it up and it's deodorant, it's like, <laughs> you know, or, or a weight loss book, you know, there's some, some presents you open, you're just like, you got to explain this one to me. Um, this is that type of present, right? The, the Christmas story is about the father sending his son most people understand that, even if they don't believe it, you understand that. But what I want you to ask yourself is why? Why does the Father send his Son? And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us exactly why. I want you to notice two reasons why the Father sends his Son. The first one is to redeem a people. Look with me again at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. Uh, we, we explained this last week, right? We're, we're slaves. We're held captive by the law of God. We've broken it. We cannot pay the penalty. 
And redemption is this idea of, of paying the price to set a slave free. The father planned to redeem his people, and the son paid the price to redeem his people. That's why Jesus came. God wants to redeem you, friend. He wants to rescue you from your bondage to sin, to self, to despair, to death. But a price to redeem you must be paid. And Jesus is the one who paid that price. That's why the Father sent the Son. So the Christmas song says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Why did God send his Son? Why did the Father send the Son to redeem you, to pay the penalty, to rescue you from bondage? That's glorious good news. And number two is perhaps even sweeter, to adopt a family. Verse five, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might receive adoption as sons. A couple of days ago, I was talking to my kids, and one of my kids was telling me that she didn't want to be adopted. She wanted to be mine for real, and I explained to her the, the beauties of adoption and how even a child that comes into a family through adoption is still a child, my child. But there's this temptation, I think, to look at adoption negatively. And one of the reasons why we do that is because every adoption story has trauma in it. It just does. We were reminded as we were working towards the adoption of Ezekiel into our home that in order for him to become a part of our family, he would have to lose his biological family. That's a very real thing. It's a very real loss. It's a very real trauma, and we ought not to underestimate that. And yet, without adoption, the trauma is still there. See, some are tempted to think that adoption is almost like a, a, a bad word. It's, it's not something we want to talk about. It's, it's a negative thing. But listen to me. Adoption, yes, it comes out of trauma. But without adoption, the trauma just lingers and festers, and there's no redemption in it. Dear brother, sister, if you're a follower of Jesus, yes, there is trauma, we could say, that led to your need to be adopted. What's the trauma? Well, it started in the garden, right? Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and as a result, all of human, the human race is fallen. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, you have within you, apart from the work of Jesus in your life, you are forever cut off from God. That's bad news. You are, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. That's bad news. But the good news is that God sent his son to adopt you, to welcome you in. He loves you so much, friend, that he chose to send his son to chase you down and invite you into the family. Why did the father send the son? 
to adopt you into a family. Now listen, um, there's a temptation, I think, sometimes when we talk about the Trinity to forget that we're talking about we're talking about persons who love us, not just a list of propositions that we better get right and not say it wrongly. Even the first sermon in this series when I showed you, here's all the ways we shouldn't explain the Trinity, all that's still absolutely 100% true. And yet, we have to be careful that our main focus in talking about God as Trinity is not, oh, I better get it all just right. Our focus is loving the person, loving God. Now, we cannot ignore what the scriptures clearly teach about who God is, but you can get the formula right and not know the person. You can have all, all the creeds and the councils memorized and not know the person. You can, you can you know, parse everything just right and not love the person. When God chooses to send his son to adopt you into his family, it is because he wants a relationship with you. He wants more than you just being able to regurgitate a bunch of truths about who he is. He wants you to love him, to know him. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, even as we strive to rightly speak about and understand the Trinity. Let us not forget the goal is not merely to understand him, but to love him. Do we love him? Do we hear this good news about a father sending his son and say, yes, I love him. Do you love him? You cannot rightly tell the Christmas story without God the Son, who is sent. Now, George Whitfield changed Wesley's hymn for the better, I would argue. But in, in just a moment, we're going to sing another popular Christmas carol that has been changed, perhaps, for the worse. It's, it's one of my favorite Christmas carols, O Come All Ye Faithful. It was originally written in Latin in the 17th century. We're not quite sure who wrote it, but we do know this, the earliest versions of this Christmas carol have a verse that perhaps you've never heard before. It's been left out of many uh, modern hymnals, and it's very unlikely you'll hear it on many arrangements of this Christmas carol on the radio. The, the verse goes like this, and we're going to sing it in just a moment. True God of true God, light from light eternal, lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. Son of the Father, begotten, not created. Those lines are taken directly from the Nicene Creed, which we've alluded to in the past few weeks, and we're going to quote from it again together before we sing. What does the Nicene Creed teach us about Jesus? If you believe this, I'm going to invite you to follow along and read with me in the words on the screen together. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Do you pray with me? Jesus, we praise you that you would choose to become what you were not so that we might become what we were not. That you would choose to leave the glories of heaven, to empty yourself and take upon yourself the form of a servant, to make yourself of no reputation, to become obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus, you are worthy of our worship. Protect us from the pitfall of thinking that rightly defining you doesn't matter. Protect us from the equally dangerous pitfall of thinking that that's all that matters. Help us to know you as you reveal yourself in your word and to love you. Help me to love you. May we grow in our love for you this Christmas for your glory and for the good of all those around us. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.